him. Uh, we have a guest speaker today, and uh, I'll introduce him in just a moment. And uh, there is uh, just some good life change uh, moving already this morning. Uh, so excited to be here. Uh, I want us to pause for a minute, though, and uh, it's been a, a hard week uh, with uh, Uvalde and all that happened uh, there. Uh, I was thinking a couple of weeks ago, uh, we talked about rejoicing with those who rejoice uh, as our high school graduates uh, finish up. Uh, we just celebrated with them, uh, and this week uh, I was saddened as I thought of uh, the 19 who won't ever have a moment uh, like we had two weeks ago. Uh, and so the scripture tells us uh, to grieve with those who grieve uh, and to weep with those who weep uh, and to rejoice with those who rejoice. And, uh, and we want to we weep today and grieve uh, as we have all week with these families. Uh, there is nothing brilliant that we can say. Uh, I don't think there's any words that are probably that much of a comfort, candidly, to the families right now. Um, but there is one, uh, God himself, uh, who can reach into the depths of grief of someone and meet them there. Uh, and God is really the only one uh, that will meet these families in a place uh, where he can genuinely do a uh, work of comfort and strength in them. And so we want to pray uh, for that, uh, for them, and, uh, and just in the days ahead. But, so I'd like to just have a little bit of silence so you can pray specifically. I know several of you have already, uh, but let's just pause and do that. Uh, and then also uh, just give gratitude today on this Memorial Day weekend uh, for those who have sacrificed their lives uh, for the freedoms that we have uh, as a country. So let's, uh, let's be quiet and pray uh, silently, however you'd like to, and then uh, I'll pray over us. Father, this morning uh, our hearts are, are grieved uh, with uh, families, friends, community uh, in Uvalde. And God, I pray uh, today uh, that in a way only you can, uh, that you'll meet them in the depths of their grief, uh, in the very crevices of where they hurt, uh, in the ache and the pain and the loss and uh, just trying to even get a grip uh, on what just happened. And God, I pray and thank you that you're the only one that's walked through an agony so deep uh, that you can identify with them. And just as you wept, Jesus, uh, with Lazarus's family, I pray and thank you that you weep today uh, with these families. And God, I pray uh, that in our hearts today we would do the same. And God, we ask that you would be a comfort to them in a way that only you can, a strength to them in a way that only you can, 
Uh, and Father, in a way that only you can bring about a deep joy in Christ in the midst of the suffering. And Father, I pray in the days ahead that you continue to meet them. And God, that you'd give people uh, just promptings to pray. Will you do that with us, God, whenever we see stories on the news or read something about it? Will you help us just to pause for a moment and pray? Uh, for the ways you would prompt us in that moment for a family or uh, for whatever's going on. And, uh, and then, Father, I pray that you'll continue to wrap them up uh, with people uh, that can serve them and love them uh, and encourage them in these days. And, Father, I pray uh, today uh, that more than anything that people see uh, Christ, that they'll see the cross and that they'll see the power of the resurrection, the life that can be had in you uh, in the midst of some of the worst uh, scenarios. So we thank you, God, today on that end. And then, Father, we're grateful for the country uh, that you've given us uh, to live. Scripture tells us that you've placed us uh, in the geographical boundaries in which we live, and we're grateful that you've placed us here. Uh, and, Father, I thank you for all those uh, who have given their lives uh, so that we might have these kinds of freedoms. So I'm grateful today, God, most of all for you and grateful uh, for the ways that you have secured freedoms for us. More than that, God, I'm grateful for the freedom you secured for us in Christ. And I pray today that our hearts would continue to be shaped and molded and transformed into your image. Uh, and God, I pray that we be obedient to the things that you call us to be obedient to. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on a... On a different note uh, today, I mentioned we have a guest speaker uh, with us, and uh, uh, several months ago now, uh, Ron Simmons, who is uh, part of our Church 121, invited me to breakfast, and he wanted me to meet this man uh, that was a friend of his, uh, and so I went to breakfast, and I found myself intrigued from the moment I sat down with him, and the longer he talked, uh, the more I got on the edge of my seat uh, at breakfast, and he was talking about the problem that he'll discuss here in a moment with us, and he was moving towards a solution, and I was literally on the edge of my seat. I was so excited to hear what the solution was uh, that he was about to give to the problem, and I'm not going to tell you what it is that he said to me. I'll come back later after you hear what the solution is to the problem, uh, but I was just so intrigued by him. I, I left thinking, I can't wait till we can have him come to 121. Uh, so Rollin Warren is with us today. Uh, he is married to Dr. Yvette Lopez Warren. He has two sons, Jamin and Justin. Uh, and more than anything, I think sometimes when we describe the accomplishments of a person, we kind of get intrigued by that, and I'm intrigued by that in him. But the thing that's most important about him is his heart for Christ uh, and his love for Jesus. That's who he is first and foremost. Uh, he also is a Princeton grad, uh, and then uh, from the University of Pennsylvania, the Wharton School of Business uh, from there as well. Uh, for 20 years in the corporate world with IBM, Pepsi, and Goldman Sachs. Uh, for 11 years, he served uh, as the president of the National Fatherhood Initiative, and since 2012, he's been serving as the president and CEO uh, of CareNet, uh, who he represents and he'll speak of uh, in these moments. Uh, nationally, he's been on uh, most of the major news media outlets, on CNN, on Fox, on 
uh, uh, Oprah Winfrey uh, on the Today Show, on Dateline NBC, uh, and it continues the Black Entertainment uh, Television Network. Uh, he has been in articles with the Wall Street Journal, uh, USA Today, multiple news outlets, including Sports Illustrated. I still haven't figured that one out, uh, and I hadn't had a chance to ask him uh, what that was about. It had to be far better than the degrading swimsuit issue uh, that Sports Illustrated puts out on women. Uh, and so hopefully what he talked about was a purifying thing uh, for them. Uh, and then he's written two books. Uh, he does a podcast and he's, he does a number of things, but he's written two books. One is called Bad Dads of the Bible, uh, Eight Mistakes That Every Good Dad Can Avoid, and then Raising Sons of Promise, A Guide for Single Mothers of Boys, and he draws from his own life experience of being raised uh, in a single-parent home uh, to write that book. So I just want to introduce to you, and I'm grateful today that Rollin Warren is here to share with us. That was better than the golf clap earlier. So yeah, thank you so yeah, much for nice. that. That's so good. Nice. So that you get at the 18th hole, I think, this kind of thing. So it's good. That's encouraging for me. I have low self-esteem. So um, <laughs> it's good to get that affirmation before you say anything. I may encourage you to maybe not say anything. But anyway, but thank you, Pastor Ross. I appreciate uh, an opportunity to... Uh, be with you, and uh, I want to apologize on the front, and we had a little uh, technology problem with, with the slides I have, so I'll have to sort of explain some of them a little, in a little more detail than I, I normally would, so I'll give you that as a, as a preamble. Um, but as your pastor said, I'm, I'm uh, with uh, CareNet. It's a, a ministry uh, that is focused on the life issue, and I just want to quickly, for folks who uh, may not be interested, uh, may not be, excuse me, aware Oh, there it is. I can only see me there. I'm supposed to be looking there. <laughs> User error. All right, here we go. Um, so, uh, you know, our, our ministry is really focused on ensuring that uh, women and men facing pregnancy decisions are transformed uh, by the gospel of Jesus Christ and empowered to uh, choose life for the unborn children, abundant life for their families. And I, I always like to start with that because our vision... Uh, is, is really what drives this ministry uh, and drives the work, the work that we do. And uh, just a couple of things quickly on, on, on the vision statement is that it, um, it, it really focuses on women and men. So this, we don't see this just as an issue for, for women, but also for men, and I'll kind of unpack that some more. Uh, the focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ and the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is central. And then also this notion of uh, empowering um, folks to choose life for their unborn children, and abundant life for their families. And I want to unpack, spend a lot of time kind of talking about uh, that perspective. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, if you talk to someone from CareNet uh, for more than 20 seconds, um, I think they're going to do it. There we go. Um, for more than 20 seconds, what you're going to find is if you ask them if they're pro-life, they're, pro they're going to tell you no. Uh, they're not pro-life. Uh, they're pro-abundant life. And... We're not just trying to be sort of catchy or, or just kind of marketing speak or something like that. It really is focused on the fact that um, when you look at the, uh, John 10.10, what you find with Christ is, is that Christ said, I came that you might have life and then have that life abundantly. And so the insight that we had was that Jesus actually was not pro-life. Jesus was pro-abundant life. 
Well, how do we know that? Because he said he was pro-abundant life. He didn't say he was pro-life. He said he was pro-abundant life. And we thought that since that's Jesus's why statement, our why statement should be linked to his why statement. So if the reason why Jesus came was it so that we might have life and have it abundantly, then we should be thinking the same way. And we should be thinking that way in terms of every issue, and especially in terms of the life issue. Um, here's the reason why. It's, when, when you look at that passage in the Greek, there's a word uh, for abundantly, which means this, which means um, it, it's the word parisos, right? Which means that it's super abundant in terms of quantity and superior in terms of quality. So super abundant in terms of quantity and superior in terms of quality. Let me just unpack that. So if, if you're at a fast food restaurant or someplace and, and you, you go up and you get your cup and then they say, well, do you want us to supersize you? And you say yes, and they give you a bigger cup. This is not that. <laughs> this is you taking the same cup that they've given you and just going over to the fountain and it just overflows. It's everlasting. That's what parisos means. And then it's superior in terms of quality. And that's really a word that really talks about relationships, like a quality relationship. So if you have a quality relationship, like if you're married, your, your marital relationship should be your highest quality relationship. And so it's really talking about this kind of intimate relationship that you have with, that with, with, with someone in terms of that whole notion of parisos. So really what Christ is saying in that moment is that he, he, he really wants to take us back to the garden. Because you see, Adam and Eve had parisos. How do we know that? Well, they had abundant life before they sinned, everlasting life before they sinned, and, and they, they walked with God in the cool of the garden. So when Jesus said, I came to you have life and have it abundantly, what he's saying is, I came to take you all the way back to the garden. That's how he thinks about life. And then, then the second aspect is, is, the, is, is the word life. And there are two kinds of life that he's talking about here. He's talking about bios, which is where we get the word biology. But then he's also talking about zoe, which is a unique type of spiritual life that only comes from a relationship with God. So with bios, we're talking about physical life, given it at conception, a heartbeat, you've got a heartbeat, then you have life. I mean, that's how we kind of think about life. And then spiritual life comes from a relationship with Christ, and that means you're heaven bound. So what, what he's really saying there here is that he, he's saying, I came to link your bios with my zoe. Your bios with my Zoe. In other words, your physical life with my spiritual life. In other words, that you might be a heartbeat that is heaven bound. Now, if life begins at conception, right, that means that abundant life begins at conception, which means that the way that you think about life outside the womb should be the way you think about life inside the womb. Therefore, if Jesus is pro-life, pro-abundant life inside the womb, then he's also pro-abundant life outside the womb. Do you see? Do you see? Now, here, here's the thing. When you start to think about this that way, it, 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 it changes how you think about things. Because, see, you, you can't be an atheist and be pro-abundant life. You can, be, you can be an atheist and be pro-life, which, again, don't get me wrong, it's a good thing because you're solving for heartbeats. Excuse me, you're so solving for heartbeats, right? But, 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 you're, but you're not solving for heartbeats that are heaven-bound if you're an atheist. So it seems to me as Christians that we should be thinking differently about this than the atheists do, don't you think? So in other words, you, you have to transition how you think about the life issue in that context. And I'm hopeful by the time we're done here that uh, you understand that perspective more. Now, so the question becomes, how do we activate this perspective. I mean, how do you activate this? And so if you think about being pro-abundant life as sort of a, a house with a roof and there's a pro-abundant life roof, there's pillars that hold it up. The first pillar 
is God's design for family. God's design for family. And, and, and there's a story that's an important story. It's, it, I think it's a pretty important story. It's in the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament. And you know what that story is? It's the birth of Christ. And we find a woman who's facing an unplanned pregnancy from a human perspective. She has hopes and dreams and aspirations for her life that do not include a child at this time and in this way. That's Mary, facing an unplanned pregnancy from a human perspective. Well, what do you know? And, and, and of course, Mary has, has, has all this uncertainty swirling around in her head, right? She, she, she's like, oh, I've, I've got this news. I'm going to conceive and, and give birth to this child. And, 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 and what's Joseph going to say? What's my family going to say? What's my community going to say? How am I going to take care of this child? All this uncertainty swirling around in her head. And what does she do? She doesn't focus on the uncertainty of what she doesn't know. She focuses on the certainty of what she does know. That there's a life growing inside of her, and it's not a life worth sacrificing. It's a life worth sacrificing for. And she says, what? Let it be unto me, as you said. And she chooses life. And, and it was interesting, because once that got downloaded into my brain, I started to think about the work that CareNet does, these pregnancy centers. We have over 1,200 across the country, pregnancy, affiliated pregnancy centers. I started to think about our work differently, because I thought, oh my gosh, what we're actually doing is trying to encourage women to ascribe to themselves the virtue and the character of Mary. That instead of focusing on the uncertainty of what they don't know, focus on the certainty of what they do know. There's a life growing inside of you, and it's not a life worth sacrificing. But it's a life worth sacrificing for. Now, here's the thing. What did God do to make sure that Mary's unplanned pregnancy wasn't a crisis pregnancy? Well, he sent an angel to Joseph. And Joseph was a man with a plan. His plan was to divorce her quietly, to put her away quietly, divorce her quietly, because back then you couldn't put the baby away, so you put the woman and the baby away. What does that sound like to you? It's a cultural version of an abortion. That's how they did it back then. And the angel comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, I know you're a man with a plan, but I got a new plan for you, man, and it is this. I need you to be a husband to her and a father to the child growing inside of her. Husband to her and father to the child growing inside of her. Because Joseph had hopes and dreams and aspirations for his life. And his life with Mary, they did not include a child at this time and in this way. And instead of focusing on the certainty, uncertainty, what he didn't know, he focused on what? The certainty of what he did know. There was a life growing inside of her, and it wasn't a life worth sacrificing. It was a life worth sacrificing for. And Joseph, like Mary, said, let it be on to me, as you have said. And he chose life, too. And of course, when Herod wanted to kill uh, Jesus and was after Mary and they were at risk, who did the angel go to? Went again to who? Joseph. Man with a plan, another plan for you, man, it's this, to provide and to protect. One man, two missions, husband to her, father to the child growing inside of her. One man, two missions to provide and to protect. See, there's always been a design in God's economy for men when it comes to an unplanned pregnancy. Now, here's the thing. See, the, Jesus could have come into the world via a single mother. I mean, Scripture could have been written in such a way that Jesus just came into the world via a single mother. Now, but the problem is, see, that would have accomplished God's purpose, bringing a Savior into the world, but it would have violated this principle, a high idea of how children should come into the world. So Jesus came into the world in a structure that, that, that accomplished God's mission without violating a principle. He, he comes into the world, into this covenant relationship that Mary and Joseph were in. They weren't just engaged or kicking it or whatever, <laughs> right? They were in a covenant relationship. They were in a marriage that had not been consummated. And Jesus comes into the world accomplishing God's purpose without violating his principle. This was the high idea. 
A father and mother united in marriage, loving each other, loving their child, and loving God. That's what you see in the first in, in this story, in the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament. Now, I always tell folks, because, say, well, are you saying that every woman who gets pregnant should marry the guy that got her pregnant? Of course, I'm not saying that. I know that that's not reasonable. Um, and candidly, you know, at times, it's not even what's best. But we do know that the social science data is off the charts, that kids do better across every psychological, social, educational, and economic measurement of child well-being when they're raised by their two biological married parents in a high-quality, low-conflict marriage. We, that's what the data shows. So we should be striving for that. But, but here's the thing. There's a high idea that's being communicated here. See, a woman and man who face a pregnancy decision have delinked fatherhood, motherhood, sex, and marriage, and God's design for those things, and the unplanned pregnancy is a consequence of that delinking. And so if a woman comes and we love her up and she brings the child into the world and that stuff's not relinked, what do you think happens too often? She'll be back. This time with a different pregnancy and a different guy. Now, that's not ministry. That's business. That's a sign that says, thank you, come again. But... Jesus, see, that's retail. Jesus didn't do retail. <laughs> see, Jesus said, come as you are, but don't stay as you came. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Amen. So that's not transformational. That's transactional. See, and the, the way you move from transactional to transformational is that you, you, you engage in and you promote and you support the, the, the covenant institutions that God has died, designed to move you from transaction to transformation. And marriage is one of those things. And God's design for, for fatherhood and God's design for mother. Those are covenant relationships that are transformational when you view them in the context that God created them. So it, it, the question on the table is, you know, are you... Are you thinking about the issue that way? I mean, I mean, are you thinking about the life issue that way? Or are you satisfied with a sea of single mother homes as far as the eye can see? I mean, is that really what God wants for mothers and for their children? You see, I grew up in a single mother home. I know very well how difficult that is for mothers and for children. Is that really God's best? Is that really what God wants for children? Is that even really what God wants for men who create children? I think that you find in the biblical narrative in the first chapter, the first book of the New Testament, that it is not. Now, here's the thing. What you see in that perspective is two sanctity. See, I don't believe that we should reject abortion just because it's an assault on the sanctity of life. See, I believe we should reject abortion because it's also an assault of the, on the sanctity of marriage and family as well. When Joseph was approached by the angel, the first thing that the angel told him to do was what? Do not be afraid to take Mary as your baby mama. Wife. So, so what you see there is that the first thing that happened was J Joseph, Joseph was called to what? Sanctity of marriage and family before he was even told who Jesus was. Is that how you think about the issue? See, here's the thing. When, when Roe v. Wade was decided, two things happened, and we only talked about one thing, and the thing that we talked about is abortion. But there was another thing that happened was that Roe v. Wade de-linked motherhood and fatherhood in the womb. So now women become mothers at conception and men become fathers at birth. 
That's huge. I don't even have time to unpack all that. But if you wonder why it's so difficult to get a guy who's not married to the mother to take responsibility for the child from conception to birth, it's because we've been telling him for over 40 years that you're actually not a father. And once he doesn't do that, it's really difficult to reconnect him after the fact. So Roe v. Wade had an enormous impact on the culture, on what men should do or not do. And again, I don't have enough time to walk through all that, but it's profound. Had a profound effect on men, a profound effect on women. See, motherhood and fatherhood were created and connected and unified in the life of the child. Husbandhood and wifehood are unified and connected in the life of the child. So God's design for family is key. And you can't think about this issue, the sanctity of life issue, without thinking about it in terms of the sanctity of marriage and family issue. Now, this is a slide that's kind of got a little jumbled here, so I have to explain it a little bit because it's supposed to build, and it's not going to. So let me just unpack it for you quickly. This, this slide kind of reflects the support needed by mothers and ch children, physical, emotional, spiritual, and social support. That's what you see on the one side of the page, right? The, okay. And then down at the bottom is time. The C is conception. The B is birth. 10 years old, 18 years old. The line, the orange line you see going through the middle, that basically means the support needed by mothers and children increases over time. Are you with me? Increases over time. Now, God is wise. He has a design to make sure that mothers and children get the support they need over time. It's called husbands and fathers. It's called husbands and fathers. Now, here's the thing. The work that I'm engaged in is that pregnancy center work. PRC down there at the bottom, and that little teal from conception to birth, that little, that's the little sweet spot of pregnancy center work. Amazing work that needs to be done, supported, amazing, from conception to birth. But here's the problem. See the area that's green there? That area is called missing support. So to the degree that a woman can't figure out how to solve that green area, she's much more likely to have an abortion. That's where her hopes and her dreams and her aspirations for her life are. That's what an abortion clinic talks to her about. How are you going to accomplish your hopes and your dreams for your life? And so if she doesn't have a guy who says, I'll be a husband to you and a father to the child growing inside of you, guess what? She's much less likely to what? Bring the child into the world. See that 86% number? 86% of the women that have abortions are unmarried. Did you know that? So explain to me how you're going to solve the sanctity of life issue without solving the sanctity of marriage and family issue. I'll wait. God had a design. See, he solved it because he called Joseph, you what? A husband to her and a father to the child growing inside of her. Do you see? Now, this is a very practical way of looking at this, and frankly, it's very relevant to me because when I was a 20-year-old college student, I got a call from my girlfriend. That was a call that you don't want to get when you're a 20-year-old college student. She was from Texas. She was driving with her dad in his truck, and people in Texas apparently have trucks, and um, <laughs> go figure. And she realized that she had a moment, and she's like, oh my gosh, I'm pregnant. She gave me a call. We were both undergrads at Princeton. I was a junior. She was a sophomore. Came back, went to student health services to get the pregnancy test. Nurse comes out, delivers the test. Results, you're pregnant. Without even taking an additional breath, says, now, of course, you're going to have an abortion. 
And she says, well, I don't want to have an abortion. I want to have my baby. I want to get married. She says, well, wait a minute. What year are you a sophomore? How are you going to graduate from Princeton with a baby? She says, well, I, I want to get married. I want to have my baby. I says, well, what do you want to do when you graduate? Oh, you want to become a doctor. <laughs> How are you going to become a doctor and graduate from Princeton with a baby? Seems like abortion is the right choice. Well, by the grace of God, we move forward. We got married, been married 40 years, May 1st. <laughs> We celebrated by me giving her COVID. So it was just a true story. I, I, it's just a gift that keeps on giving, isn't it? Isn't it? It's so special. And, and ironically, we were in California and we were visiting that kid who's now an adult who ended up going to Harvard smarter than both of us, not because he went to Harvard, but just because generically, that's a little Ivy League joke. <laughs> Go Tigers. Anyway, because he had his first child. And so we got the grandbaby that came from the baby that we were supposed to throw in the trash can. I'm just saying. And oh, by the way, uh, I think I, my, some people call my wife doctor. Some people do. But, but here's the thing. I'm not under any illusion about the hopes and the dreams and their aspirations for her life. And although it was her body and her choice, the reality is that my response impacted that. And we have spent 40 years in a movement where we don't even try to engage the guy. We did a survey of men who had participated in abortion. And what we found was when we asked the question about who did she talk to about her abortion decision, and we gave them a long list, her best friend, her mother, abortion provider, medical professional, everything. Guess who was number one? Guy got her pregnant. Then we asked him, who was the most influential in her decision to abort? Guess who he said? I was. Now. Did the same survey of women who had abortions, this was a national sample, women who had abortions, we asked them, okay, same list, who did you talk to about your abortion decision? Guess who was number one? Guy got him pregnant. Then we asked, who was the most influential on your decision to abort? Planned Parenthood? No. Guess who? The guy that got her pregnant. Now you explain to me how we built a movement for 45 plus years that goes after talking about everybody, to everybody, except the one person who's the most influential in the abortion decision. Now, if you're pro-life, that's okay. I mean, I'm okay, and I say that with small okay. I mean, it's a, I'm not saying that you're happy with that, but the reality is that that model of looking at the issue doesn't bring you naturally there. Why? Because it doesn't include necessarily God's design for family. Because as long as I save the baby, if she got four kids with four different dudes, hey, check, 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 check. But if you're pro-abundant life, then you're thinking about this transformationally because you're talking about God's design for family. You know in God's design for family, you don't get that without the guy. Do you see? And here's the thing. When the woman has a guy who says, I'll be a husband to you and a father to the child growing inside of you, guess what? She's more likely to give the child what? Bias. 
Life. 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 Now, second pillar. God's call to discipleship. Here's the observation. If you talk to many Christians, I might even say most Christians, and you ask them if they're pro-life and they say yes, and then you say prove it, they'll tell you who they voted for. You know it's true. They'll tell you who they voted for. Or they might say I provided some material support for, for pregnancy center or something like that. Had a group of pastors recently. We did a first ever pro-life men's conference. First ever pro-life men's conference at Dr. Tony Evans Church here in Dallas back in March. It's amazing. Over 500 guys. It's just amazing. We're going to do it again too. Had a group of pastors and I asked the pastors, how many of you became pastors because you wanted to overturn Roe v. Wade? Raise your hand. Guess how many hands I got? I said, how many of you became pastors because you wanted to end abortion in your lifetime? Raise your hand. Then I said, how many of you became pastors because you felt called to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make disciples for Jesus Christ? Guess how many? Whole room. And that's when you know, I asked that question before of pastors. I always, got the, I always get the same response. See, and that's the insight there is unless you see the life issue primarily through the lens of discipleship, then it's something that you care about from time to time as a church, but it's not core to the mission of the church. The mission of the church is to make disciples. So you hear pastors saying, well, I can't preach about the life issue. Why? Because it's, you know, it's so political. I mean, and, you know, whatever. I say, well, do you preach about poverty? Well, of course I do. You ever heard politicians? Do they talk about poverty? I've never heard a pastor yet say, well, I'm not going to talk about poverty because politicians are preaching, talking about it. Why? Because we understand as Christians that dealing with poverty is connected to what? Disciples. See, the reason why Christians do good works is to make disciples. See, doing good works is good stuff. That's called social services. Ain't bad, but ain't Christianity. We do good works for the same reason that Jesus did good works, to make disciples for Jesus Christ. See, Jesus had all these folks coming to him. This one has, I don't know, too many demons. This one's got too many husbands. This one's got too much money. This one's got too much pride. They all come to Jesus, and Jesus says, come as you are, but don't stay as you were. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So he meets them at their point of need and then calls them into a discipleship relationship. When you see a young lady facing a pregnancy decision, I submit to you, your first thought should not be, man, I, I, I wonder who I should vote for so she can't have an abortion. Or I, I, I wonder even about what kind of material support she needs. Your first thought should be, as a Christian, she needs to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. That child growing inside of her needs to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. The guy who got her pregnant needs to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. This isn't the work that's outside the church. This is the work that's inside the church. It's the mission of the church. She is a mission field for you. Do you realize your entire faith is built on an unplanned pregnancy from a human perspective and God's response to it? That's why Chris said, well, this ain't my issue. That's not your issue. This, this is the issue. Every time you help a woman who's facing an unplanned pregnancy, you're retelling the most amazing true story that's ever been told, which is the birth of Christ. Do you see? I'm getting a little worked up here. Sorry. Sorry. I know I need therapy. 
Now, just somebody, well, you know, but wait, but the politics, let me, let me frame this for you the way Jesus did. Now, I'm just going to model what he did. Remember that he was given that coin? Remember that? And, and they said, well, should we pay taxes? And what did he say? Render unto Caesar what is Caesar unto God, what is God's? What did Caesar care about? Political power and material wealth. Jesus said, yeah, those things are important things, but there's a higher thing. Now, here's the thing, which is, it's discipleship. Now, here's the thing. You can't be a disciple maker without caring for those in need. Why? 1 John 3, 17 says, well, if your brother and sister's in need and you have no pity, then the love of God is not in you. In other words, you are not a disciple maker. So you can care about material support without doing discipleship, but you cannot do discipleship without caring about material needs. Do you see? And the same thing happens on the political side. What do we know? Governments have an ability to be harsh and critical and cruel to who? The most vulnerable. And we, as people of the book, should hold the government accountable to what? Just and merciful, especially to whom? The most vulnerable. So as people of the book, we should be doing that. So we have to be involved from a political standpoint. But here, again, you can be politically engaged without making disciples, but you can't be disciple without being politically engaged. Do you see? So, so what this perspective does is it frames how you view these issues in that context. And the other thing is that when you, when you think about this in the context of, of, of evangelism and discipleship, it really clarifies things. See, the work that we do at pregnancy centers, amazing work. We, we do evangelism, which can lead to a conversion experience. But the problem is, too often, is that that convert ends up going back to the culture who demands that they conform to the culture. And when they do, delinking fatherhood, motherhood, sex, and marriage, guess what happens? We see them again. So the cycle goes, us, back to the culture, us, back to the culture, us, back. That's great if you're, again, a retail establishment. That's not ministry. See, what's supposed to happen is that person supposed to go from the pregnancy center to the church for ongoing support and discipleship. So that person will be disciples who makes disciples who live in love like Jesus, starting with the child that they bring into the world. Starting with the child that they bring into the world. DC. That's, that's why, so if you're not thinking about the life issue that way, then there's a problem, then it's not connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the context of making disciples. I was a little black boy. Now I'm a big black man. All day. I'm like this all day. I was little. I was like, dang, this every day? It's like, yes, yeah, every day. I just roll with it now. I'm just, I'm used to it. Like, yeah, okay, I'm just going to roll. My mother got pregnant when she was 15, 16, 17 first time. My brother, and then she had me when she was 19. By the time she was 23, she had four kids under the age of eight. My father was pretty much gone. When I got my girlfriend pregnant, the thought of me being a baby daddy was never even, in, it didn't even connect for me. I couldn't even, even though I grew it up in a father absent home. And that's what was modeled for me. Why did it not connect? You know where I went to? Church. And when I went to church, I saw men being husbands to their wives and fathers to their children. And that had an impression on me as a little black boy. See, when you come from a neighborhood where you've been to more baby showers than wedding showers, 
how do you think you're ever going to break the cycle? And in one generation in my family, broken. Both sons, both married, no babies out of wedlock, praise God, right? One generation, God has a design. And the other thing with this issue is that it's tied to religion that is pure and faultless in God's sight. James 1.27, right? Religion that God our Father finds is faultless, right? We care for the orphans and widows in their distress. And when this was written, what was an orphan? It was a child without a father. And what was a widow? It was typically a mother without a husband. The difference today is, instead of that husband and father being dead, the proverbial husband and father is, is saying to the mother and the child, you're dead to me. And now she's at risk. So those cultural orphans and widows are called single mothers and kids. Now, the church has a very specific call to that demographic all through Scripture, Old Testament all the way through. But we also have a call to that guy, that, that, that proverbial father who's dead, for him to have a Lazarus moment, to roll the stone back. It'll stink. But to call him into God's design for family. Only the church has the transforming power to do that. And that only happens if you start to think about this issue through the lens of discipleship. That's why we created a ministry kit called Making Life Disciples, which is designed to equip small groups in churches to come alongside someone who's facing a pregnancy decision. Now think about your small group. You, I know you have small groups here, right? A lot of times our small groups are about us loving us. Somebody new tried to join our small group. Like, uh-uh. <laughs> now we got a thing here. This is our thing. You better start your own small group. It's a small group plant. What if our small groups became about not just us loving us, but about us loving them? What if your small group got trained so that when someone was facing a pregnancy decision, that your small group came alongside them. Remember, she's making the decision from conception to birth based on the support she has after birth. This issue is about nine months and one second. And so if she doesn't have a dude who's stepping in and say, hey, I'll be there, guess what? That's the role of the church. And oh, by the way, life decisions need life support. She wants to have the abortion. Why? She ain't got no place to live. You got an extra room? They've been a couple. They're living together, whatever, whatever. Their relationship frayed. Okay. They've never even seen what a godly marriage looks like. How long have you been married? Will you mentor this couple? He's running from fatherhood because he never had one. You've been a father for how long? Will you come alongside this young man? She can't get to her prenatal visit. You retired. Can you take her? Is that how you're thinking about the life issue? See, the, the sanctity of life, then, instead of being a sanctity of life Sunday, sanctity of life every day. It, this doesn't roll around once every four years when you're trying to figure out who to vote for. It becomes a way of life because why? It is anchored in the core meaning of why we are here, to make disciples. And you see this couple, this issue, as a discipleship opportunity. 
There's only one institution that is ideologically aligned and structurally capable of handling a post-role world in a God-honoring way, and it's the church. What do you think that we are gonna, what do you think that we gonna have to do if Roe v. Wade's overturned? And oh, by the way, if it's not overturned, what do you think we should be doing? Tell me, people say, well, is Roe v. Wade gonna be overturned? I'm like, don't get me wrong. I want it to be overturned. But for me, there are many things that are legal but unthinkable. It's a smaller list than it used to be. Many things that are legal but unthinkable. Every time a woman could have an abortion and she chooses to bring her life, her child into the world, she just overturned Roe v. Wade in her own heart and in her own mind. My wife overturned Roe v. Wade. It's a death of a thousand cuts. So that's why when the politician doesn't get into the court, I don't get all twisted up about that because I realize that we have a power to turn a Starbucks into a pregnancy center because we can have a life-transforming conversation with anybody, anywhere. Do you see the power we have? We're the army of God. We're supposed to be, see, the life support that folk need are in these pews. Each one of you has a like, life buoy that they need. But only if you think about this issue through a pro-abundant life perspective do you get there. And when that happens, guess what? You get Zoe. When, when there's that spiritual transformation, you have Zoe. God's design for family, God's call to discipleship. Those two things come together, then you get Zoe. Now I gotta close up here. Jesus, Jesus had two ministry models. I mean, I'm kind of a simplistic guy, and we had to think about things at times. And Jesus had two ministry models. One ministry model, model he had was I call the receiving model, and the other model I, I call the retrieving model. With the retrieving model, you saw that first. That, that's where Jesus had the disciples and, right, you with the net. Yeah, no, the net, God with the net, you. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to make you a fisherman. You retrieved. The Zacchaeus, remember Zacchaeus up at the tree? Come down, we're going to do a power lunch. Now, you saw his receiving model with, uh, with, with, with examples like the woman with the issue of blood. Do you remember the story of the woman with the issue of blood? Do you remember that? All she could do in the dust, the dung, and the dirt was just crawl and just touch the fringe of his garment, all she could do. And, you know, she had an issue of blood. And it's interesting because that story is so relevant to me because the abortion is an issue of blood. It's her flesh and blood. It's, it, it, the woman's flesh and blood. It's the guy's flesh and blood. It's an issue of blood. Abortion is bloody. And when you have a woman who, who, who takes that pregnancy test and, and it's... <sighs> or someone who's had an abortion. All she's going to be able to do is just touch the fringe. The question is, do you have the sensitivity of Jesus to say who touched me? All the programs we have going on in church. Who touched me? If someone this Sunday, this Sunday morning is facing a pregnancy decision, took a pregnancy test, it's not good news, who is she supposed to talk to in this church? There's nine days from the time a woman confirms her pregnancy, typically, until she has an abortion, especially with the medical abortions now. Nine days, only one Sunday in there. She has to know when she takes that test that her church is not going to try to treat her like the woman, like the Pharisees tried to treat the woman who caught in adultery. 
you can't stone the woman without stoning the baby. You do realize that. She has to know that her church is going to treat her the way that Jesus treated that woman. Come as you are, but don't stay as you came. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And if I ask you who should she call in this church, each and every one of you probably has a different person she should call. Let me ask you. If this is a room full of Planned Parenthood people and I ask who should she call, guess what? They all got the same number. Do you see the problem? So you got receiving and then you got retrieving, right? Those two things together. They come together when Jesus is on the boat. Excuse me, Jesus. Huh? Peter's on the boat. Jesus on the water. Remember? And Peter's like, dude, I want to come out there. And Jesus is like, come on out. The water's fine. Peter steps off the boat, eyes on Jesus, takes his eyes off Jesus, begins to sink. Now, what is Jesus' first ministry model is what? Receiving. Come on. Peter starts to sink. Jesus doesn't say, well, there's many strokes you can use. There's the backstroke, breaststroke, dog paddle. <laughs> what does he do? He shifts his ministry model from what? Receiving to retrieving. Grabs him, sturdies him up. They go back to the boat. When a woman is facing a pregnancy decision, walks out of a pregnancy center, says, I'm going to have this baby. She gets home, and her mother says, you ain't living here with that baby. She begins to sink, and we're not the only ones that have a boat. Now, if we're just a church and we're out there, we're friendly people. See if you can swim on over. So the question on the table is, are you pro-abundant life? Not just pro-life but pro-abundant life. Do you link God's design for family, God's call to discipleship? Is this anchored into who you are as a Christian? You see this fully, like water for the thirsty, food for the hungry, clothes for the naked, home for the homeless, compassion for the pregnant. Are you pro-abundant life? Amen? Thank you very much. So appreciate uh, what he shared, and you just had the breakfast moment that I had. And at breakfast, I'm looking at him, like, what's the solution? And he said, you are. And that's what he just said to you today. You're the solution. It, it's not something outside of here. It's you. Uh, and so my hope today is that our hearts are stirred in, in different ways that we can be a part of uh, what that solution is. I actually believe that the way we do life here with our life groups is one of the very best ways that we can be involved in these kinds of scenarios. I think group on one uh, is a viable way to really serve and help people for the long term. I think it gets challenging when it's one person on one person, but if you have a group of people together walking with someone, inviting them into your group, uh, and then doing life with them together, I think there's a far greater chance that we can do the thing that he talked about. Uh, so I hope that whatever group you're in, that you'll pray about, what does this look like? And that you either let Jessica Howard or let me or let Eric, let us know, hey, you know what? We run into this situation, let us know. We would love for that person to come into our group. I actually think sometimes it's better when it's an older group and there's a younger woman. There's something in the Bible that says the older women are to pour into the younger uh, and I think older groups have more life experience. We have uh, many more that are empty nesters now, retired. There's more time. There's more ways to, to more deeply engage. So uh, anywhere across the board we can do that, but I think that's one spot uh, to really consider. 
Now, this might stir up different things today, uh, and, and I understand there are a number of you that have had abortions and a number of men that have uh, been a part of that decision. Uh, and so we have people available today and ongoing. Uh, this is a safe spot for you to kind of work through that. Uh, if that's something you've never shared with anyone before, getting that out of the dark is incredibly freeing. Uh, and so let me just encourage you today uh, to seek out, uh, to seek us out in a way that we can be a help uh, on that front. We'll also have people here in a moment that can pray with you if you'd like to uh, pray. Uh, we'd love to be able to do that with you. And then there are other ways to serve. So our life groups are a way to do that. There's a table out in the hallway that has different ministry opportunities, different groups that we're partnered with and work with uh, in the community uh, on this particular uh, issue. So we'd love for you to jump in if that's something that you'd like to be uh, a part of. So all those things uh, are, are things to consider today. Uh, and to really take them uh, to heart. So I hope you'll really pray. It's easy to leave, to be moved by someone that uh, is, I mean, that was powerful this morning. Uh, it's easy to be moved by that in the moment. Uh, it's different to be captured by that in your heart, that it actually becomes uh, something that we do uh, something with. Uh, so that would be my hope and prayer uh, today. So let me pray with you, and then let's have a little bit of silence and consider uh, what is God saying to you today, uh, and what is He speaking to your own heart? So, Father, thank you for uh, the, the time. Thank you for Roland. Thank you for the ways where you've placed him. Uh, also, just love God, the model he is of someone that's been successful in business uh, and turning around and using that uh, in the way that he is. So, Lord, I pray you might stir people up here that might be on the back end of of what their business is and, and what their retirement might look like and just see the kinds of things where we can labor well in our uh, years in ministry that are remaining. So, God, would you stir the hearts of people to be a part of the things like Roland is today? Uh, and then, God, I pray you'll stir our hearts to how you want us to be involved in the lives of, uh, of young women, of, of men who are, uh, have been involved in abortions or considering uh, what, what it would be for them if they were pregnant. I pray today, God, as I've been praying, that if there's anybody today on this day trying to decide whether they're going to have an abortion or not, uh, that this day would be an intervention for that and that they might see the life uh, that can be had ahead for them and the support that they would have. Uh, and then, Father, just stir our hearts today for yourself uh, and then the ways you want us to be uh, engaged in the things that you're doing and uh, ways to get inside the hurts and the sufferings and the difficulties uh, of others. We're grateful that you've called us to be interdependent today uh, and to lean on you and then to lean into each other uh, and to disciple each other well. And I thank you for that. Pray in Jesus' name. So let's just be quiet before the Lord and uh, maybe nail down anything he might be saying to you. <laughs> 